Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Welcome to the Indie Rugby Podcast Japan 2019, in association with Tudor Watch, the official timekeepers of the Rugby World Cup. I'm Jack Demonazes, and today we're dissecting the controversial victory that saw England make it two wins from two by defeating the USA, looking closely at the incidents involving Owen Farrell and Piers Francis, as well as the scrutiny referees are facing at the World Cup. I'm joined by Samuel Lovett in Tokyo, who also watched the game in Kobe yesterday where I was. Morning, Sam. Morning, Jack. Sam, it was a good win for England um, in what was a heavily changed team. Ten changes in all, but a number of good performances, not least from captain George Ford and wing Joe Fokinasiga, who scored two of England's seven tries. The others came from Ford himself, Billy Vanapola, Luke Cowan Dickey, and then Rory McConaughey and Lewis Ludlam in the second half. And on the face of it, it was a uh, successful win for Eddie Jones and his side with no further injuries to worry about. What did you uh, make of the performance? Um, yeah, so I thought it was a comfortable win. Um, to be expected against a side like uh, USA. But honestly, I, I'm, I'm remaining convinced that England can beat sort of one of the tournament's heavyweights on the back of what we've seen so far, aren't you? obviously these two performances. You know, whereas obviously New Zealand have already shown what they're capable against South Africa and Ireland had that performance against Scotland. England have been, I think, putting in rather bland and inspiring performances. Um, last night obviously was an improvement um, and there is an argument obviously to be had that we've not had a proper test yet to bring out our best side so I think I'll withhold full judgement until after we face Argentina and France but I mean there's certainly aspects of the last two performances to be worried about I think handling particular was atrocious at times the amount of times that we built some momentum playing quick ball only then to drop it in the final 22 I thought was very frustrating um, and if you look at what sort of one of England's strengths that quick rolling ball they, they can't afford to let sloppy, avoidable mistakes creep in. You know when they're when they're pressing opposition lines. Um, it looked like discipline was going to be another issue. Um, I think it was after 15 minutes we conceded four penalties, but to their credit, they did clean up their acts and didn't concede any more after that. Having said that, though, we were turned over 23 times uh, compared to the USA 17 against the New Zealand or Australian or South African back row. You know we, we can't be that vulnerable. So there's a lot of improvement to be had, but it'll be yeah. I, I think we we we'll see where this England team stands after France and Argentina. Eddie Jones was um, very pleased to come through the two opening games with a maximum ten points, and they sit top of uh, Paul C. But do, do you think that there's not really a lot to take out of the last two games then? No, there's, there's positives. Uh, maybe I'm I've been a little bit harsh. Um, I, I thought the, 
way in which we kind of went back to basics. Um, it, that seems where our, our strengths lie at the scrum, at the set piece. Obviously, we, we had we had two tries come from those rolling moves. But again, against stronger positions, will those tactics be effective? Um, I know Jones spoken about his willingness to, to revert to old English tactics and, and styles of rugby, but I'm, I don't know how far that's going to get us. The idea of playing ambitious, free-flying rugby, I, I didn't see that much of it on offer last night. It, it seemed that you know when we, when we did sort of open our legs and got running, that's when the mistakes started happening. Admittedly, we didn't have our strongest players in the backline presence, so you know, like Turalangi and that ability to puncture the line. Um, so yeah, like I said, I'd be interested to see how the old school tactics work against, you know, in Australia, South Africa, and New Zealand. Um, but I mean, that's my opinion. Yeah, and we won't know that really until the the latter until stages there, yeah. if England get there, because even. You look at the France and Argentina games, they're probably games that England should be winning. They, they don't lose yeah. to Argentina and France. They, they tend to get the better of. Um, so, m- moving on, um, there were two or three controversial flashpoints within the game, so let's go through those. Uh, the first game in the opening tackle of the match, uh, Piers Francis hitting US fullback Will Hooley with a high tackle from the kickoff. Um, do you think that he'll face further action on that one? It, it didn't look great at the time, I've got to admit, and the replays make it look a lot worse. Yeah, I, th- I think there will be uh, retrospective action. If, if you look at the, the John Quill incident, obviously, later on in the match, he was sort of met the full force of the law uh, following the Reese Hodge incident and World Rugby's admission that standards haven't been up to scratch. So I think this is the one that the referee missed. Um, and once the incident's reviewed, there should be some some, some form of punishment. I, I think the the feeling from watching it at the time was that he just got his tackle technique completely wrong. I, he he arrived almost going far too fast, out of control. Uh, he, he was bolt upright from the way he should be tackling. He he wasn't really in the crouch position that World Rugby are trying to encourage now. I'd, I'd, I'd be. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous tackle. I mean, whether or not the intent is there to, to cause harm, or whether or not it's malicious, if they've got their tackling technique wrong, and there is potential to do serious harm, then the, the um, you've got to punish them in the, in the correct way, haven't you? Yeah, and I, I think he might might well get a ban there. We've we've already seen Reese Hodge and. Uh, Rayleigh Lowe of Samoa get three week bans for similar tackles. I, as it, I think from the replays, Francis has made contact with the head, so straight away you're talking six week minimum. And if he gets full mitigation, which he likely will, he's got a clean record. Uh, that's three weeks, and that's him out of the not just the rest of the pool stage, but potentially the quarter final, which um, could be an issue for for England. So let, let's look at that John Quill tackle on Farrell. Um, well, it wasn't a nice one to watch. Uh, he, he hit him with his shoulder with no attempt to wrap the arm, square into the face. And also the whistle had gone, which uh, just made it all the worst. You know, Farrell had knocked the ball on. Play was definitely coming back. The USA knew that. Was it a case that it was a malicious tackle or do you think that Quill just let his frustrations at how the match was playing out get the better of him? Um... <sighs> Again, in this instance, I don't think it was malicious. Um, I, I don't think there was genuine intent 
to do foul harm. But uh, as we said earlier, it, it was it's still a dangerous tackle. Um, and the referee was right to, to show him a red card to show that the referees will, from now on, start stamping, clamping down on uh, those sort of high, dangerous tackles. Uh, I mean, what was what's interesting to see is the, the reaction of sort of the pundits afterwards. Um, sort of Hugo Moni, obviously, very strong in condemning the challenge, but then you had Clyde Woodward sort of taking England's uh, side on this. Obviously, shock horror. But then, yeah, just for, the just for those that that hadn't seen it, he he claimed it could have ended Owen Farrell's career. Um, now, of course, that could be true, but this is the same Clive Woodward that said the other day he didn't think Reese Hodges' tackle was that bad. I mean, talk us through that one. Yeah, exactly. Well, there's, there's, he's had no consistency in terms of the way he, he's analysed and scrutinised these, these sort of tackles. Um, the argument being that for the larger, more physical players, that it's acceptable to try and stop them with more with, with illegal techniques um, whereas obviously I don't know for the, for the smaller players the implication being that you have to stick to, to what's legal and what's what's fair I don't know if, you, if you've got the same view on that yeah same well, interpretation I, I was luckily there I've been there for both incidents the the Australia Fiji one where Reese Hodge hit Pacelli Yato high and left him concussed uh, and then also John Quill won on Owen Farrell and Farrell was lucky to escape without a concussion. Uh, England medics looked him over and gave him the thumbs up. But um, I'm very disappointed with Woodward's comments uh, just because Pacelli Yato is a strong ball carrier and really difficult to bring down does not mean you then have free reign to hit him in the head. I mean, if it was a case that he had hit him relatively high but didn't avoid uh, managed to avoid his head then yeah I, I could see why Hodge could maybe get a yellow card for using his shoulder Woodward's tried to row back a little bit and claim that Hodge wrapped the arm I mean that just isn't the case the arm came round after the impact to the head and the fact that Pacelli Yato is now suffering from quite a severe concussion that could keep him out of their third game as well as their second one uh, that they lost to Uruguay shows just how bad the tackle was and we, we can't just allow that mentality to manifest within the game that because these guys are bigger and stronger they should be hit high and it just kind of conforms to the the horrible stereotype that is within the game that the tier 2 nations are treated differently to the tier 1 nations yeah. and I'm not a fan of it. Um, so let, let's look at the the final incident, and it's a bit of a, a strange one. We've we've already privately dissected it, and we're a little bit, I'd say we're a little bit torn on it, aren't we? Um, Will Hooley, having already been hit by Francis in the the first tackle of the game, then suffered a second nasty blow uh, after being tackled by England replacement Mark Wilson. Now it was an odd one in that Hooley was on his way down from a high catch and. His standing leg did touch the turf before Wilson makes contact. And yeah. Wilson makes contact with the raised leg first. So it's not high, it's not head height, because Hooley isn't there. He hasn't come down yeah. fully yet. And within the laws of the game, you would say that Wilson's well within his right to do that as he's timed it right. He then yeah. goes through Hooley because Hooley ends up almost horizontal and it's very marginal if he does make contact with the head but then Hooley hits his head on the turf very badly 
he was taken off the field on a stretcher and USA boss Gary Gold said afterwards it was a very bad concussion. He, yeah. was, he, he was taken to a hospital um, with the team doctor. So we're, we're hoping for good news on that, that it's not severe. But do you think that Wilson was to blame at all for that one? Or, or was it just a bit of misfortune? And do you, do you think there's a chance he could face action? I, I think it's more of the latter. I think it's, it's quite a misfortunate incident as a whole. I, I think Hooley's technique, um, I, I think he, he's got it quite wrong there, the, the way that he, he's landed, he's, he's obviously dropped the ball, which is, which is thrown him. Um, the way he's come down, he's come down at an angle, and then obviously he's got that raised foot, which is what Wilson makes contact with first. Uh, I think the suggestion is that the concussion is, has come from the impact with the turf as opposed to Wilson. So I think when the when it is reviewed, I think that probably be taken into consideration. Um, I just think it's just one of those things that happen in, in rugby. It, it is unfortunate, and Hooley in particular, he's had a bad game. He's taken a fair few knocks. Yeah. So the hope is the hope is that it's nothing too serious, um, and that he will recover in time with with no sort of long term effects from this. But I, I feel it'd be quite harsh to retrospectively take action against when Wilson and what would have been interesting um, to see if had Hooley you know received the ball gone to turf what would happen then because it Wilson I think this is where the issue lies it, the way he timed his tackle he was, he was very close to the line it had been the case that when Hooley had landed would the hit have been made straight away or would he have been caught seconds before he made contact with the ground I, I, don't, I don't know um, but We'll have to find out on this one. Yeah, and each match has a thirty-six hours uh, a thirty-six hour window afterwards for any sightings to uh, be brought. Mm. So we'll, we'll see the end of that one by Saturday morning. Um, mm. Right, that's all for part one. Uh, join us after the break for part two, where we'll take a look at the players who put their hands up uh, in the England team for selection against Argentina and France. Welcome back to the Indie Rugby Podcast Japan 2019 in association with Tudor Watch, the official timekeeper of the Rugby World Cup. So we've covered controversial moments, Sam. Let's take a closer look in part two at the individual performances and who put their hands up for selection. Now, before we delve into that, I spoke to Eddie Jones after the match about who stood out for him. And while there was praise across the board for the way that players pulled together for the team, there was a special mention for young flanker Lewis Ludlam. What, how did you uh, rate Lewis Ludlam's performance? Outstanding, absolutely outstanding. Yeah, he was tough, he was on the ball, carried hard, cleaned out hard, tackled hard, really good. Is he exceeding expectations? No, or did you no, believe? no, not at all. You mentioned the importance of the players playing for the team as opposed to trying to do their individual accounts. How do you feel that paid off? Uh, brilliant. Yeah, I was really pleased, really pleased with the attitude of the team again. Really pleased. And was that a cross the squad thing? Is it yeah, like anyone tried to go out on their own? Squad of 31. So, Sam, that's what the England boss had to say. So, what did you make of uh, Ludlam's performance? And then who, who else stood out for you? Uh, yeah, Ludlam, really live performance. Uh, I thought he, he was. Very physical, uh, very pom across all aspects of the pitch. You know, he's, he's the sort of the good player to have, sort of the breakdown, but also sort of among the backs and sort of the handling aspect of the game. Um, I thought he, d- he deserved the try. 
capped off a really nice slick movement from the team. Um, whether or not you'd start him ahead of Curry and Underhill, not so sure. I think he's the sort of player who be good to have off the bench. Can sort of bring a lot of energy, sort of in the sort of closing stages of a match. So in that sense, of, you know, he, he would be a good impact substitute. Um, I don't know what, what yourself, what you, what you think on. I think I'd agree, um, but then also I, I think that's a, a remarkable statement to make given where he was. You know, la, 12 months mm. ago he's fighting for a contract at Northampton Saints. Now he's yeah. not only made the World Cup squad, but he was a replacement for the first game and did not look out of touch at all when he came on and then starts the second game and has an incredible performance. I mean, some of his ball carrying was really brilliant. It was, it was of a Billy Vanapola ilk, you know. Mm. He's quite a powerful man for someone who's not that big yet and he, he's still yeah. got a little bit of developing to do. So I definitely think going into the big games, I'd have him on the bench. There was the yeah. argument initially that you would have, say if you started a Maro Toje, George Cruz second row, you could put Launchbury and Laws on the bench because Laws can cover the back row. Yeah. But... I don't think you need to take the risk with that now. I think Ludlam yeah. is is there to cover. Safe bet, yeah. So, um, who who else was there? George Ford. I uh, was I was really impressed with him. Uh, I thought his kicking was was on point. I mean, for, for most of the match, whether it was a case of sort of doing those little chip balls in behind or sort of high hanging balls, which obviously caused the USA's uh, back three a lot of issues. I thought it was a really controlled, measured performance from him. Obviously, he got that first try as well, which was. I think more a case of poor US defending than sort of Ford being particularly penetrative in his running. But, you know, he spotted the gap, found it, ran into it. He did the basics. Yeah. So He almost looked a little bit embarrassed to score it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he was. It, it was that simple and that easy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, compared to four years ago, he's come on a long way, hasn't he? He has, and he really looks like he's uh, settled into that side now. Um, one selection issue I do want to bring in, uh, it appears to be a bit of debate at fullback. Uh, Elliot Daly played another eighty minutes, and he's he's setting up a lot, but his, the impact he's having himself doesn't seem to be as much as we normally expect from him. And we've seen Anthony Watson come on and make another strong contribution last night. Um, and with Joe Fock and Asiga flying on the wing, two tries for him, and Johnny Mayer shooing in for selection. Does Watson need to replace Daly at fullback to make room for Fokinasiga? Um I feel like he could be at risk. Well, look at sort of the quality of, of England's last two opponents. These are the sort of games where players like Elliot Daly should be making their presence felt, um, having a really strong impact. And he's, I think he's been found wanting a little bit. Um, Look at Watson, the way Watson came on, immediately his presence was felt. He was sort of, he was a running threat, wasn't he? And, and Elliot Daly wasn't in that sense. So I feel Anthony Watson is probably, he's going to be more effective at 15 than, than Elliot Daly. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how he fares against Argentina and France. It could be it Jones gives them a half each, but then again, is, is that too much of a risk? You know, these are matches that England have to win. So. On account of performances so far, I think I'd, I'd be inclined to go for Watson. Yeah, I, I think it's an odd one. It, it takes me back to when Mike Brown was first taken out of that position and Watson was put in fullback, having impressed massively on the wing, and Watson struggled under the high ball. And then <clears> he got his injury and Elliot Daly 
went to fullback, and again, Elliot Daly had starred on the wing, been one of England's best players, and he struggled under yeah. the high ball. And I, maybe it is easier to look better on the wing because you do get a fair bit more ball in attacking space than fullback. But you mm. would you would have to say that Watson's the form man at the moment, having only yeah. returned not long ago from a nasty ankle injury. So mm. that that does look like a bit of a selection headache for uh, Jones to yeah. ponder. Um, another one is a. Uh, up in the front row, Mako Vinopola has returned to full training and looks set to feature against Argentina next Saturday. That's a welcome boost for England. But Joe Marler has started both games so far, yet Ellis Genge has made brilliant contribution, and especially last night when he came on at half-time, I thought he really caught the eye, especially with that rampaging 50-metre yeah, run, I, flattening three defenders on his way. So what I want to ask you, Sam, if Mako is definitely involved, do you start with Marler and bring Mako off the bench? Do you start with Genge and bring Mako off the bench? Or do you risk starting Nipola, who has only played 17 minutes of rugby since May, and have either Marler or Genge on the bench? All right, that's a lot of variations there. Um, I would go, personally, I think with, with Marler uh, ahead of Genge. I, I know, like you say, Genge did, came off the bench last night. He had that storming run, made an impact. He is a lot more prominent in the loose compared to Marla but you know England placed so much emphasis and importance upon the set piece upon the scrum and the line out uh, I think Marley he's a key pillar key foundation to that he's a safe pair of hands in, in that sense he's got more experience he's more street smart I, I feel Genge not a risk but he, he's still relatively young uh, as, as front line forwards go so I, I feel Marley's just yeah a safe pair of hands in this sense yeah, I'm I'm going to disagree with you, I think, just because Genge brings so much ball-carrying ability. We saw that when he came on at half-time. Um, and I don't think Marla can do that. I don't even think Vinipola can do those 50-metre sprints. He, he can certainly break the line and do yeah. the bulk of the ball-carrying, but Genge seems to have that X-factor that maybe Carl Sinclair also has. And I, I genuinely think that the Argentina scrum is not quite what it used to be we've seen yeah. it, we've seen it struggle in the rugby championship and for that reason I don't think it's going to be as crucial for England to have a scrummaging yeah. top row and I, I almost want to say that I want a matchday squad with Genge in it than without it but may, yeah. maybe the argument is that if you go with my idea do you have to start for Nepola and bring Genge off the bench yeah. maybe that's the risk that I am I asking too much of Nepola coming back from yeah. injury and that's where your your suggestion comes into play that Marler is the safe pair of hands that will give you 80 if you need 80 but yeah, yeah that... the thing is we've, we've already got players uh, you know of, of Genji's calibre who, who can make those sort of storming storming runs in the middle of the park who can sort of make how many metres sort of, sort of breaks um, do we need more players like that I, I want a forward who's, who's going to give me that solid foundation who's going to do a job in the scrum um Leave, leave the running and, and you know the powerful breaks to the to the back line to the back row. Sorry, um, so yeah, that's where I stand on that. Uh, maybe that just shows my flair compared to your uh, yeah do- dogged attitude. Approach, yeah. <laughs> and and finally, let's just look at the um, the halfback makeup. Uh, so we, we we've discussed Ford, uh, and now we've seen how he can run the show alone. 
Uh, we've also seen the Ford Farrell partnership. We saw it start against Tonga and we saw it in the latter stages against the USA. Where are you on that one? Because you do also have to factor in Manu Tuolagi and Jonathan Joseph, who has looked quite impressive coming back into the fold. Yeah, um, quickly on, on Jonathan Joseph. Uh, like I said, I was really impressed with his performance last night, uh, particularly that, that nice little turn he had for, for his try later on in, in the match. A little pirouette there, wasn't it? Yeah. It showed what he's capable of, um, but, but still, I would say Tuolangi, you, 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 you know, Ford Farrell is, is that sort of trio that you want. I, I think it offers England the most uh, penetrative approach. Uh, Tuolangi has something that no one else has in the team: that ability to puncture opposition lines, break, you know, make important meters, um, and with Ford and Farrell sort of alongside him. It's a lot more composed. It feels a lot safer, calm, um, a lot more controlled and measured. Um, so I, I feel that's probably the best approach for England to have. You know, you've, you've got the, the, the power of Tuolangi alongside the, sort of the vision and ability of, of Farrell and Ford to sort of guide the ship. Yeah, I, th- I think I have to agree with you. That's still the midfield partnership that devastated Ireland in the, the warm-ups. And I think that's mm. the favourite one. There was a very comical uh, episode at the press conference last night when one of the US reporters that obviously hasn't watched England as much as we have uh, asked Eddie Jones if because of the success that Ford and Farrell had late on in the game that's good, that's a potential selection method further down the line and of course we've seen that over the last six years um, but where, where you worried that Jones was about to tear him apart, he uh, quite comically passed the question off to Steve Borthwick, who had to answer that one. And uh, <laughs> Borthwick gave a very straight and sensible answer. So yeah, it, it was all good and well come the end. Well, that's all for today's episode. Uh, join us again tomorrow when I'll be joined by the independent Sam Peters to preview Wales versus Australia, the big game in Paul D this weekend. Remember to subscribe to this series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen for all the latest from the competition, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.